The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you from support by the community at the Secret Library Podcast Patreon. You can join the conversation and support the show at patreon.com slash secretlibrary. This is episode 139 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest today is Christopher Castellani. He is the son of Italian immigrants and a native of Wilmington, Delaware. He currently lives in Boston, where he's the artistic director of Grub Street, the country's largest and leading independent creative writing center. He's the author of three critically acclaimed novels, A Kiss from Madalena, winner of the Massachusetts Book Award in 2004, The Saint of Lost Things, a book sense indie bound notable book, and All This Talk of Love, a New York Times editor's choice and finalist for the Farrow Grumley Literary Award. The Art of Perspective, Who Tells the Story, a collection of essays on point of view in fiction, was published in 2016 by Grey Wolf Press. And his latest novel, Leading Men, he received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, McDowell Colony, and the Massachusetts Cultural Council. It is out now, and it is a delicious book. So I am thrilled to have Christopher on. As with many episodes, I am always very excited to have someone who both writes and teaches writing because we're really, really able to dive into what matters when writing a book. And I find that those who have taught writing before have just images, references, and insight at their fingertips from teaching many students. And Christopher was no exception in discussing the process of finding point of view and how that is central to writing. If you're struggling with point of view in your book, this episode will help a lot. And I think that diving into what it took to write Leading Men, a book that took him many, many years to get to the point where he wanted it to be, is an incredibly useful conversation when you have a book that really has been with you and that you've invested in and that matters so much. I know that his experience writing this book will support you and allow you to move forward. I know it was the same for me. So here we go with Christopher Castellani. Hi, Christopher. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So I am very excited to talk about this book because one of the things I think that is possibly the most difficult to talk about that is handled so well in this book, and since you've taught writing, I feel particularly willing to prey on you on this topic, <laughs> is language, just the use of language. I mean, I I read a lot of books, as you can imagine, for the show. And this one was like candy. It was just like, oh, the language. And part of it is that you don't get sucked in, I think, as so many of us who try to write do, into getting too writerly, if we do the air quotes. It's it's clean, but yet it's still beautiful. And I'm just wondering what your process is working with the language before we even <laughs> get to the story itself. Mm -hmm. It's a really good question, and I, thank you so much for it because um, um, it, language is my first love when it comes to to writing. I believe I actually wrote in um, I wrote this little book called The Art of Perspective about point of view in fiction, and one of the things I assert in that book is that it's 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 really the language that that is the most seductive um, when it comes to a book. You think it's the characters, you think it's the the, uh, the story, but even a book that doesn't 
that doesn't embrace lyricism as a strategy that 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 isn't um, that isn't necessarily known as being um, you know a um, a book that is is known for its language or whatever. It really is the voice that is the most seductive. It's the voice, it's the language, it's the attention to the craft of the sentences that ultimately is what stays with you. And that's always been what has stayed with me. And um, so um, I I don't consciously try to um, make the sentences again, more lyrical or less lyrical or plainer style or whatever. I just try to do what's right for the moment in which I'm trying to, you know, like the moment I'm trying to depict. Um, so when the, when the moment calls for a kind of lyrical flourish or it calls for plainer language or it calls for shorter staccato sentences to, um, to sort of increase the, you know, heart rate or whatever, you know, obviously you sort of try to have the, the, the the, the 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 style of the language mimic the um, you know the emotions you're trying to get out of the the scene um, but but it's definitely the um, it's definitely what keeps me coming back to you know to the story and, um, and I'm so glad you said this about the book because just talking with um, a friend of mine named Chip Cheek who you should have on this show uh, he has this debut debut novel coming out in May called uh, or April called Kate May. And, um, and, 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 and he was saying, we were talking about what he called jazz hands in, um, in <laughs> <laughs> and um, how like he reads so many books that, that, or he has read books that kind of are so self-consciously showing off their language and showing, look, I can do this. Look, I can do that with language, um, which is great. But if it's not tied to the project of the moment in this in the scene, if it's not sort of organic to the story, to the characters, to the mood, to the plot, then it is just showing off. It is just you know anybody can write um, you know a gorgeous sentence. Anybody can write um, you know a, a a good metaphor. It's how are you tying it to the uh, you know how are you linking it to the you know to the to the character to the story to the moment that is specifically tied to this story um and that can almost not survive outside the petri dish of that story um that it's so inextricably linked to what to that particular project that it is that it's again organically part of it and so that's what i was really trying to do is to find I had another, sorry to go on, I had another friend who um, taught a class once, uh, another writer named Adria Bernardi, I'll never remember, I'll never forget that she taught a class called the Lexicon of Novels and or something like that. And she was saying that um, each character, each story has its own like discrete set of words um, that belong only to that, you know, only to that story. And, um, and, and that, um, and that's like the goal of the writer is to kind of tease them out of the dictionary and like find them and arrange them. And I sort of like thinking about books that way, that they are this organic, um, you know, organic outgrowth of, of, um, of this kind of thinking. So, yeah. I love that. I think it's true that there is one thing that it makes me think is it, it reminds me of that movement. This is sort of a weird segue, but there was that movement in film called Dogma 95 that grew out of, it was a, I think it was a Scandinavian, it was a Lars von Trier thing. And it basically was saying, 
we're, we've made all of these technical developments and we can do all this cool stuff with special effects. And now the, all these movies are becoming vehicles to show off what kind of special effects we can create, but there's no story underneath. So they were like, we're, we're not having any flashbacks. We're not having any movement in time. We're not even going to really have any lighting. We're just going to tell the story. And I right. feel like to an extent, that's sort of what you're talking about with language and with books. And and the, the sort of the sad thing to me is that when language is really good, you don't even notice it at all. It's like it's it's completely colorless. And all you see through it is the story, which is you know, excruciatingly difficult to accomplish. And so then the poor person who's done it gets no recognition for it because you, you can clearly notice too many adverbs and just, you know, kind of campy pulp, kind of real aggressive language that gets in the way. But when it's really transparent and all that comes through is the story, it's so hard to do. And also so difficult to talk about, I find. Absolutely. I know as you're talking, I'm thinking, I, I should say something smart about what you're saying, but, but <laughs> I don't have anything smart because it is, it really is, it really, it, it really is like, if you can see it, then you've suddenly lost it. You know, exactly. um, if, you can exactly. see, if you can see the hand, uh, if you can see what the author is doing too clearly in a moment or a scene or a, a bit of language and the seams are showing or the work is showing, I guess is the way to put it, then, um, then, then you've lost it. So, um, so it's like you try so hard, you, you know, and you work so hard and then you and then you hope it doesn't show. You know, that's basically the it's like the it, it is. It's like magic. So maybe maybe the way to talk about it is to talk about what it isn't and to talk about ways you can avoid going wrong. Mm. So what do you notice are are mistakes that you see that that you try to avoid and that you know you see in other writing and because I just don't see them in this book so <laughs> well that's very kind but uh, thank you but um I mean this is this is just the first thing that comes to mind I think it's related um when I, part of the like the hardest uh, this book was actually a very um it wasn't a difficult book to revise in the sense that it would it came um what by the time it was sent to my editor and all of that. It, um, it was pretty much in its finished form in terms of the, the way it was structured, um, uh, what happens in the story, all the kind of, you know, big plot points and everything was, were pretty much intact. Um, so a lot of the work actually of revision did come from fine tuning, tweaking, rearranging certain things within, um, chapters. And what I noticed when I was going through the revisions, and this is not something my editor pointed out, but that I just happened to notice is that what I would do at the start of each chapter, um, and this was, this is wrong, right? So (laughs) the start of each chapter is I would like start in some clever place. Like I would start with like an image or a line or a bit of dialogue. And I would kind of like disorient the reader in a way and, um, kind of intrigue, quote unquote, intrigue them. And then I would back and then I would backtrack and then I would kind of then like, and then I would set the state, set the stage, set the scene, and then lead up to that moment where, where that other, where that clever thing happens. And then I would, and then I would move on from there. And I noticed that like, that's not, the worst way to structure an entire book in the sense that like you open with something that intrigues the reader and you backfill and then you move like as a superstructure, I think that that's 
a perfectly legitimate kind of strategy to try. Um, but like when you're doing it too often, like at the beginning of chapters, at the beginning of scenes, you're, you're, you're kind of like, you're doing, you're, you're, you're you, like, you keep teasing the reader rather than um, pulling them along in a story that again, feel, I keep coming back to this word that feels organic, that feels like, like you wouldn't, if you were telling the story to a friend about something that happened to you, you wouldn't tell it that way, right? You wouldn't say, you wouldn't give them a detail and then pull back and then lead up to that detail and then keep going. Like that's, that, that's not what you would do. You would tell the story straight. You would tell the story, um, you know, um, with the context that the, that the person needed and the building blocks of the story. And so I kept doing that in various forms. It almost, I mean, it was maddening when I realized it, how almost at the beginning of every chapter, it was, everything was told out of sequence for no particular reason, um, except that I thought it was literary and clever. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so I think like, it's another one, it's just another way of saying like, remember your reader, like remember what your reader is doing. Like they're, they're not, they're not starting off each chapter. I would also kind of think of chapters as too much as set pieces, um, where this is another thing that I think was, you know, quote unquote wrong, um, that each, I, I kept con subconsciously, I think, treating each chapter like it could be extracted and turned into a short story. And um, for a novel, that's kind of a deadly thing to do. Um, and um, though, though, of course, you want each chapter to have its own kind of internal cohesion and structure and all that, um, you really, for a novel, they really need to kind of, you know, um, form and inform each other and, um, and have a kind of through line that has um, a more kind of traditional storytelling approach. And, um, and I think... So to end this little loop here, I think that what, what all, all the theme of what I'm saying is remember that you're, that you're spinning a, a yarn, you're telling a story, you're not, um, you know, you're not, you're not there to trick the reader, you're not there to tease the reader, you're not there to show the reader how clever you are. Again, this fits in with what we've said about language. Um, you're not there to show off, you're there to kind of take a reader by the hand and say, you know, you know, you know, but listen to me, let me, I have this thing to tell you, I have this world to describe to you, you know, and I think too many writers, especially writers with literary aspirations, um, you know, try to like, forget that this is a storytelling experience. It's not a, um, it's not a, you know, uh, it's not a place to show off. So, yeah. yeah, I think there's, there are these bits of advice that you, you always hear. There's sort of these tropes about the ways that structure is supposed to be formed. And then there's things like start in the middle, show, don't mm -hmm. tell. Right, and, right, right. and I kind of blame the start in the middle because I think it's like everybody feels like they can kind of shortcut the, I want my book to be noticed. So I'm going to start in the middle and I'm going to throw everybody off. Plus I also blame the shift from our, media consumption from films to episodic TV. And you can do TV episodes that way, but you can't do a whole film that way. It almost yeah. made me think as you were talking, like if you think of disorienting the reader as like a cup of espresso and like, you can't take too many shots of espresso. <laughs> like you can have one shot of espresso, yeah. but if yeah. you, if you give them a shot of espresso every, you know, five pages, then they're going to be so <laughs> disoriented they're not going to be able to focus on your book <laughs> I love that I absolutely love that it's totally true and I think you know um a novel I would also describe a novel like like you're landing in a foreign country and and um and so what what do you do when you land the first thing you do when you walk out of the 
whatever, walk out of your hotel in a foreign country, is you look around and you sort of look for signs, like, where where am I? How do I get from here to there? Like, you, you, you're, you know, when you, when you ask a reader to come into this foreign country of your novel, you really need to guide them along. Like, you, you, you need to take, again, take them by the hand as, not in a spoon-fed way, not in a, you know, easy way, but in a way that, again, is conscious of the way that people process stories and the way that people navigate um, the world of characters. And, um, and again, I say that I'm, I'm making such a point of this because I have such a tendency to, to not do that, again, to, to, to try to be too clever, to try to, you know, to, try to um, you know, write the perfect description or metaphor or whatever. And, um, and, and I forget that people just want to be told a story and they just want to be surrounded by people that they're compelled by, the characters that they're intrigued by. And they want to just find out more about them. You know, they want to find out what happens next. Um, they want to get to that next tourist destination, you know, and they, and they need to know how to get there, you know? So, um, so in a way it's so, it's the way it's much simpler than most, I think, writing teachers make it, you know, we, we try so hard to make it complicated because we don't want writers to think it's, it's, um, that it's too easy or we don't, we don't, you know, we don't want them to, um, not take it seriously or like, you know, we want them to pay attention to their craft choices. But ultimately, it's actually not the concepts are not that difficult to grasp, you know, well, it's, it's a classic example of it's simple, but it's not easy. I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, yeah. it makes me think I'm, I'm like going to the first page of your book, but it makes me think of the way that you've oriented it with the first two sentences of the book, if I may. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Truman was throwing a party in Portofino and Frank wanted to go. I mean, that is clear. We know what's up. The invitation came in mid-July, slipped between parentheses in the long gossipy paragraphs of his letter to 10, as if daring him to acknowledge it. I mean, these, like, you know what's happening, but yet you want to know why, right. you know, right. you want to know you're pulled forward in this context. And we know who Truman is. We know who 10 is. We don't know necessarily who Frank is quite as well. As who I mean, everybody knows who Tennessee Williams is. Everybody knows who Truman Capote is. So we know what time period we're dealing with. Right, right. So yeah. I'm interested, how did this, I mean, now we get to the book. How, <laughs> because this is not your first book. It's far from your first book. So how did this idea happen? Um, so uh, this, is a, this book's been a long time coming. Um, it's like, um, um you know, I've been thinking about it really and working on it in various ways for um, over 20 years. Um, and um, it started with, you know, uh, in the late 90s, I was a um, I was browsing through an, an, a, you know, a, a used bookstore on a Friday night because I was super cool. And um, and um, and that, that was where I used to hang out on Friday nights was the used bookstore in my parents uh, in my hometown. And um, I just came across this sort of tell-all memoir um, about Tennessee Williams called Tennessee Cry of the Heart, you know, and, um, and Tennessee, I knew, ten I, I knew, you know, I knew Williams's work. I wasn't like a rabid fan or anything. I knew the major plays. I knew that he was, you know, I knew his, you know, his reputation as the great, his great playwright of the 20th century. Um, so I was intrigued by it. I didn't, I didn't think I knew he was gay, to be honest. Um, and um, so I just was, you know, paging through this book and I started reading this middle section about this guy named Frank Merlo, 
who was Williams's, I learned, Williams's partner of 15 years, who was um, uh, a gay, Italian-American, working-class guy from Jersey. And there I was in that bookstore, a gay, Italian-American, working-class guy from nearby Delaware, like a few miles away. And I was like, who is this guy? And how did he end up with you know, the great playwright of the 20th century, who at the time I thought of as this kind of like, you know, high literary, obviously um, intellectual. And um, and I also read in the book about how the the they were together for 15 years. And it was during that time that Williams wrote all of his great, you know, most of his great plays. And that after Frank had died, Williams wrote for 20 more years, but never had another hit um, and um, was sunk into a Fit, you know, pit of depression after Frank died. Um, so what was it about these two? Like, what was the alchemy of these two? And um, and so I I became obsessed with them. And I also in the, the part of the memoir that really spoke to me was the fact that Frank died at 40 of lung cancer and was kind of rotting away in this hotel room. And I'm mean, sorry, hotel room, in this hospital room. And, um, and, and Williams wouldn't visit him. And, um, and, and that, only after Williams visited him did he finally die. And I mean, this had all the stuff of melodrama that I love <laughs> and, um, and, and had, but had the real, like real human cost, you know, at the heart of the story. And, um, and it had, so everything that I was interested in. And I wrote a short story based, you know, about it and told from Tennessee's perspective. And it, uh, I wrote it from my graduate program. It was the only story I wrote in my entire graduate program that everyone in the class didn't think I should immediately throw away. Um, oh, no. and, yes, and it was, and I, I had a terrible time writing short stories. And so, um, and, and so, and it was the last story I wrote in the class. So, um, so I thought, well, maybe this has something, but, but I couldn't figure out how to tell it. Um, I mean, I couldn't, I, I kept revising and revising, kept sending it out, wasn't going anywhere, wasn't getting published. And I felt like it was bigger than just a story, but I didn't know what it was yet. Um, and so I wrote three, I would, even though I was, so I was continuing to read Williams's work, read letters, read journals, read about Frank, see movies, see plays, but I was working on, um, uh, these other novels that were inspired by my family, uh, sort of trilogy of novels. Um, and, and, and I would sort of cheat on those novels with this book from time to time. I tried to turn it into a novella, um, and, and, um, and nothing was really working. And then when it came time, when I finished those three novels, I finished another craft, that craft book. Um, it came time to write this book. I was older. Um, I had, had been in a part, you know, a relationship myself for, um, you know, 15 years at the time or so. Um, and these characters really started to crystallize for me. And I realized that it wasn't Williams that I wanted to write about, that it was really Frank that I wanted to inhabit because he was the character I more closely identified with. And I really wanted to write about the, uh, primarily the, the, um, what it was like to be the partner of a genius and what it was like to have not come from that kind of world to, to like, to figure, to try to figure out one's place in that world. Um, and again, as somebody who, you know, came from a similar world, I, and I came from working class Italian American background, trying to find my way in a kind of 
the highfalutin world of, you know, I went to graduate school for English literature, I became a writer. Like I always have felt a little bit out of place in that world because of my sort of working class background. So I really, I really, that, that, that really spoke to me. And um, so I really just wanted to inhabit him and, um, and explore that. So that's a very long answer. I could say much more, but I'm sure you don't want me to summarize the whole book. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, we want them to read the book, but I'm, I'm, I love that there are, there is this side of the book, but then there's another character. And I think this is an interesting experience of inserting my Swedish is non-existent. Is it Anja? Is that how you say it? Because I'm in Germany now and we we have Antje, like as oh, a German okay. name. So I keep in oh, my oh. head as I'm reading, I'm like, it's not Antje. It's An oh Anja. Yeah. Is this, yeah. is that the Swedish version? I think, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Anyway, it's Anja is the fictional. I need to check this and find out. Before. <laughs> <laughs> so. I know when you start reading, man. Yeah. Um, I need to listen to the audiobook and find out what they did. Actually. That's amazing. So, That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That is a really good strategy, actually. Yeah. Well, apologies to anyone Swedish listening, yeah, but exactly. right. my absolute butchery. But so while both Frank and Tennessee obviously are historical figures that have, you know, there's certain aspects of the relationship that you're exploring through it. Anja came in as she's completely fictional. I mean, it feels like she's working with Bergman or someone like Bergman, even though she's not. She's an actress. She meets them in the midst of this Portofino party that Truman Capote, and then it's sort of their relationship over time and the impact of that. But I'm interested in how did you decide or how did you discover that there was an Anja in the first place? And where did she come from? And how was it to write her in her connection with these two real people? Sure. So... Please stop me if I go on for too long on this one because it's sort of an involved story. So no, I'm into it. I'm into it. I want to bore people. Um, so the original concept of the novel. This may interest the writers and the uh, you know the, the the writers, the listeners who are writers. I really had this strong idea of what I wanted this novel to be. That it was going to be a like compare contrast of two gay relationships of Tennessee and Frank. And then this other couple who we haven't even talked about yet, uh, John Horn Burns and uh, this guy named Sandro. And I wanted it to be told. And John Horn Burns, the author um, who had this, who was hailed as the great American novelist after World War II that most people have forgotten. Um, he uh, moved to Fran moved to Florence um, in you know around the same time, basically to drink himself to death after his next two novels failed. And it's also where he could he could finally kind of be, oh, quote unquote, open about his sexuality. He took up with an Italian doctor. And so um, I wanted to tell his story, John Horn Burns' story and Tennessee Williams' story through the lens of their partners. So Sandro was a point of view character. Frank was a point of view character. It was going to be like a compare contrast of these two relationships because I, I found out through research that all four of them were in Italy at the same time and that Burns died um, right, right around that time. So I thought, perfect. There's a death. It may, might have been a murder, in fact. Some people think it was a murder. And here are these two relationships that were similar but also different. I was like, great. But I started to write it. I inhabited both those characters, but it added up so neatly. <laughs> it all was so tidy. There was, there was so much that I knew already. I, I knew the book 
before I had really finished it or written it. I knew exactly what I wanted to say. And I feel like that's such dangerous territory for a writer when you know what you're doing, you know, and when you have it, when it all just adds up. And I thought this book needs to be messier. Like it needs an X factor to kind of like not shake things up for the sake of shaking it up, but just, I feel like when you shake things, when you introduce something like this, you really see the characters more clearly um, than you would have otherwise. So I needed something else. And I was like really struggling because the book felt really claustrophobic. It was just these four guys in Italy in the 50s and just fighting with each other. And, you know, it just it was just wasn't fun and um, it wasn't working. And I came upon a letter that Truman Capote had written during that same summer um, to David, Os David Oselznik, where he just casually mentions that one of the scandals in Portofino that summer was that there was a Swedish mother and daughter who were sleeping with the same fishermen. And that's it. That's the only mention of them. They're not named. Um, and I, I read that and I thought, there's my character. One of them is the character. One of them is the X factor and maybe the fisherman. I don't know. But something, <laughs> that's interesting. something about that just piqued my interest. And then right around the same time, I was at a party with, um, I just happened to be at this crazy party with um, Liv Ullman, um, who is the um, uh, muse of Ingmar Bergman. And she was telling me that um, she had been living in Boston for 30 years and and had no, and had very few, had very little, very few friends, had almost no social life. And I was like, first of all, like, I'll hang out with you. you know? <laughs> like, I, like, how cool is that? And so I had this vision of Liv Ullman, this amazing actress, uh, this muse um, who, from Sweden, you know, living, like walking through the streets of snowy Boston. And I thought, a character like her is one of those women, one of those Swedish women, and I'm and I made her the and I made her the daughter, and I thought she's going to be one of Ten's like one of Tennessee's great actresses because he had so many muses, um, and she's going to be the X factor. They're going to take her under her wing and make her into an actress, and um, and the more I wrote her character, the more I got to know her and created her out of whole cloth, well, almost whole cloth, and. Um, and I actually realized that she actually she belonged to Frank and that it was she was kind of a foil in a way for him, a confidant, um, someone who she who he could connect with outside of his relationship with Tennessee. And so it was such again for the writers and who are listening, the the combination of having her character who was completely fictional, who I could just play with and just had absolutely no restrictions on putting her inserting her into a story where that had all these other constraints these historical constraints like these characters i it was very important to me that i didn't deviate at all from where the real people in the book um were at the time so i didn't want i didn't put them in turkey when they were in italy and i if, if it was a tuesday i made sure that it was a Tuesday, you know, in the book, like, um, uh, I followed the journals, you know, to a, you know, to, you know, I followed Williams's journals to the letter. Um, but so to have those constraints coupled with the freedom made for the most like thrilling creative experience, um, to kind of toggle between those, those two at the same time. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that what made it all possible is that there's, a about 10 days in Williams's journals that are missing. And I set mm. the book during those 10 days. So like, again, it's still within those constraints of that, of what was already known. So 
Yeah. That's that, awesome. That's she, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think because the thing is, I mean, we're seeing a lot of of people diving in. I mean, this is not a new concept, like when historical figures actually appear in fiction. This has always happened. But I'm I'm seeing a lot of noteworthy, you know, mentions where that happens. Like we've got a novel by David Gillum of, you know, if Anne Frank had lived, we've got, you know, which is one way to continue a character after they've died and, and change what happens. And then you've got... Um, American spy where she's spying and, you know, a real person, but the spy is completely fictional. And I love these ways that you can kind of work structure around you because as much as people I think who don't write think, Oh, how liberating you can just make it all up. It's, it's, I mean, it's terrifying to just have no boundaries, I think, but it's also suffocating as you say, to have too Mm -hmm. many. Exactly. So this moment in the middle mm-hmm. just sounds really satisfying. It's the sweet spot. It really is. I can't believe it t- took me this long to figure it out. <laughs> but um, but uh, it really is a sweet spot of, of writing is that balance of, you know, the constraint and the freedom and kind of figuring out like what you're doing when and, um, you know, and and having this, you know, these just also like, you know, um, you have to pick a, a place and a group of people that you just want to hang out with, you know? And, um, and I mean, this sounds so basic and silly, but like all, I mean, this was especially true for me during, cause I really, really started diving deeply into this book, um, right after the election and, uh, the 2016 election. And this is the only place I wanted to be, after that election. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wanted to be with these characters in, in, in Italy, uh, in Anya's, uh, town in Provincetown where the book is also set. And, um, I just wanted to escape into that world. And I think that, um, uh, that combination of it being both real and not real, um, really allowed for that to happen even more kind of deeply. Um, so, um, so, you know, I think, Again, like it goes back to our, our original conversation, uh, original topic at the beginning. I think we try so hard to like, you know, write about something that no one's ever written about before. And it has to be hard and, and it has to be challenging and it has to be, you know, um, show off our brains and how how um, how deep we are and how dark we are, you know. And um, and obviously you want to get to the dark, deep stuff of character and you want to get to the dark, deep stuff of, you know, the human condition and all of that. But, uh, but ultimately, like, again, you're telling a story, you're, you, you want to invite people in so that you can, um, you can get that deep, you know? Um, but if you don't let them in, if you don't bring them to a place where they actually want to be, they're not going to actually enter into the world as deeply as you want them to enter into it. Yeah, definitely. Well, you kind of have them with Italy, I have to say. (laughs) You're like, oh, who, who would say, in Portofino, you think right. that's a pretty good place to start them and then lure them right in. Exactly. Yeah, I know. This was I, I had this fight, a little bit of a fight with the publisher because, of course, they wanted to splash Italy across the cover. And, and I was like, no, I don't want a cheesy Italian, you know, Riviera scene or whatever. I just don't want it to look like, you know, um, you know, to commercial fiction or whatever. And, but they, they made, I think the point that I just made, which is that you want to invite readers in, you know, so we compromised on a cover that has, that is both inviting and kind of hints at the darkness that's in this book. I mean, people think this book is like, they look at it and they say, oh, it's like 
oh, it's Italy, it's Aperol spritzes, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's Portofino, it's Shrimp Capote, it's happy. Well, I mean, like, and then I tell them, like, actually, there's a scene of cannibals, you know, and right. they're, like, talking about, you know, so, like, this book has a lot of darkness in it that, and, and you know, the main character is on his deathbed through the whole book, and um, and so, not that there aren't moments of lightness and humor and romance and, and love and and beauty and all that sort of stuff. But I, this book has a little bit of a dark heart. And, um, and I think that, um, I mean, dark heart in the sense of that it's dealing with things that are difficult. And, um, and I want, I hope that that gets, you know, talked about a little bit, you know, cause it's not just, you know, gallivanting on the beach with the glitterati, you know? No, so. I would, if I was going to sum it up, uh, sum it up in a phrase, it would not be gallivanting it's more like run for your life when you're near a cliff with a bunch of people coming out of the woods um that scene is terrifying um (laughs) and i think also anyone who thinks truman capote is all like light and smiles clearly has not read in cold blood exactly i know it's amazing it's amazing our perceptions yeah absolutely (laughs) so uh, given that you spent enough time thinking about point of view, obviously everybody thinks about point of view, but you've written a whole book about point of view. I'm wondering how that informed your choices in this book, because you're hanging with different characters. And of course it's in third person, but you're really wedded to a different character in each section. And I'm interested in how you explored point of view through getting close to each of these figures. Absolutely. As always, point of view is everything, right? It is absolutely the most important element of every every story, novel, whatever, and uh, every work of fiction. And um, I actually wrote um, The Art of Perspective because I couldn't figure out how I wanted to tell this story, who oh, I wanted great. to tell it. Yeah. So, so I was like, I, so, you know, I had the opportunity to write the book and I thought, okay, I'm going to use this as a, as a way to figure out, you know, um, this leading men novel. And, um, which is why I ultimately decided on these, on having, um, the strategy was that, um, Frank was going to tell, I was going to be in Frank's head for the reasons I already mentioned that I really wanted it. I really wanted to, you know, uh, for the, for, to explore the question of what it was like to live in the shadow of greatness and this kind of double closet of being both like always the afterthought when you walk into the room, uh, it's Tennessee and that, and that other guy, you know, and, um, and also in the, just the traditional sense of the closet. Um, so I wanted, I knew that he would had to be a point of view character in order to give him that, you know, that primacy in the, in the story. And then, um, and then I wanted, once I discovered Anya, I knew that she also had to be the, the, um, the other point of view character, because I really, um, again, I saw them as kind of, I saw them as foils for each other in a way. And, um, and I really wanted it to be about the two of them and not, and to take the, to take the focus off of just having it be about Frank in Tennessee. You know, I definitely knew I didn't want to be in Tennessee's head. I didn't want to inhabit, um, his, um, his consciousness. I felt like I, you know, I read, um, Comme Toybean's The Master and I knew that I could never in a million years do for Williams what he did for Henry James. And I wasn't going to even try. Um, and, um, and I also felt like ultimately it would distract from, it wasn't really the project of the book. It would distract from, from the project of the book, which is really to be about Frank and fame. And Anya is kind of like the kind of like Frank is longing to be famous and Anya is famous, you know, and Frank's in the shadow of greatness. And Anya is this, you know, is that, 
you know, is the son really of, 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 of great. And, and, uh, so I wanted there to have that play. So I knew they had to be the two point of view characters and I wanted <clears throat> the stru structure wise, I wanted there to be three time zones with, um, Frank and Anya together in the fifties in Italy over a short span of time. I wanted it to go very slowly in the sense, day by day by day by day in that time period. And I really wanted to kind of dig deep into that. And then I wanted there to be a second time zone of Frank having um, uh, in his hospital bed waiting for Williams to visit him, that that was the kind of like through line that goes throughout the, you know, the story. I don't think that's the right word, but that's the kind of control line. I don't know, something that, 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 that goes throughout the book. Um, and then I wanted Anya sections to be in the present. Um, and I wanted hers to be in present tense and to move faster, like to cover, or at least to cover more ground, like to cover more temporal ground. So I wanted all of, so I wanted all the kind of temporal. So like, the, the Italy scene, the Italy sections last a few months, the hospital sections last a few days, and Anya's sections last a few years and are in present tense. So I wanted that kind of temporal variety um, to kind of um, – to both add you know, just general variety to the storytelling, but also because I felt like those fit – those were the most organically fitting to – the the, um, the themes of those sections. Um, Anya it finds herself in this particular time of life when the present is actually the scariest, you know. And Frank is looking back, and so all these were all very, very, very intentional decisions. Um, and I really did map it out that way um, after I had amassed enough, you know, enough chapters to figure it out. And um, and and yeah, so that if that. I hope that answers the question. Yes, but, uh, it does. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's because that's two things, actually. There's point of view, there's there's who's looking and how they're looking. But it's also the question of time, which I think is just as important because it's true when you're on vacation, a day can feel like a week or when you're out of your normal construct. So a short period of time in Italy, each day takes on a new weight of meaning. And there are these moments where you don't necessarily know what you're going to do next. You, you don't have the sense of every day is like the others. They thought they were going to go on to stay somewhere else, but then they stay an extra night and this changes everything. I think that that it's almost like you let time take up the amount of space it takes up emotionally for them. Exactly. In the end. Exactly. And it's all of a piece, like who's telling the story, how long it takes, whether it's present tense, whether there are documents in the story, there's a play in this novel, like um, all of that, I think of as I, what I call a narrative strategy, like how are all of these decisions adding up to the ultimate strategy that you're, um, for the goal that you want to have for the, for the reader. Right. And for me, like the goal was to deeply connect with Frank and to feel his, um, you know, his, um, you know, state of mind, his story, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. Um, and also with Anya and, and like th those, those were the ways that I thought if you, you put all of these things together, time, um, the way the chapters are structured, um, the way the time zones kind of, again, inform and, you know, like play on each other, um, all that, it's all, it's the whole package, right? It's not just whether it's present tense or past tense or whether it's short chapters or long chapters or whether there's documents in it or not or whatever. It's all, it's, it's, everything has to align, right? Um, all these choices have to align into a coherent strategy and, um, 
and 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 you have to kind of once you kind of set those terms you have to stick with them and that's again the whole cliche about point of view in general but but it's true for just all these decisions that you make when you write a, a novel so um i was so very many. like kind of i was very like you know um strict about that like once i had come up with this i wasn't going to deviate from it you know or i had to find a way to work within it so yeah because i think the problem i don't know if you have this experience having written numerous novels at this point but my experience with it is that you could hypothetically become addicted to the insight that comes from figuring these things out and just keep writing draft after draft forever. At least oh, yeah. this is my fear for myself. I'm like, ooh, I figured out all these things about the character this time. Why not just do it again? It would be so yeah, fun. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. how do you let it go in the end? I guess that maybe that's uh, where we can we can <laughs> take this in. Like, yeah. how did you know when you had it ready? Yeah, okay. Um. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I was just saying to somebody that, you know, this happens with every book. I think with every writer you see that you, I just got the finished copies like the other day. So I was, um, paging through it. And of course you think, Oh, I would change this. I would change that. <laughs> I had stuff, not just, you know, on the level of the line, but, but like, Oh, I really wish I had made more of this scene and made this stretch on a bit longer and really drove that home. And, all sorts of, I mean, you could, you really truly could spend your whole life writing one book. You know, I mean, Whitman did that, right? He spent his whole life writing Leaves of Grass, kept adding to it, changing it. And, you know, that, it's a totally worthwhile project if you wanted to do that. But, um, but I feel like a novel, you know, I heard, um, I keep referencing these other writers, but I heard um, um, <clears throat> Julia Alvarez many years ago talk about, um, a novel being like a field in which there are always leaves falling. And, um, and she said that you can, um, you can just spend your life going up and down that field, raking the leaves, oh, God. But, the, but, right? <laughs> but they're just going to keep falling. Right. And every novel is just a document. It's like a photograph of that, of a field at a particular time with whatever leaves happen to be on it at that time. You know, she said it much better than that, of course, but if you would have finished it a month later, there would be different leaves, but they would still be leaves, you know? And, um, so the point is that every novel is unfinished. Every novel is imperfect. Every, really every work of art really, um, um, is unfinished and imperfect. And, um, and even Whitman, even leaves of grass, you know, is Whitman died. So there was never, you never so get that was that, <laughs> that was that. Right. And so you never get, so you kind of get, I mean, the practical thing is, you know, you get to the point where, where every decision you're, or most of the decisions that you're making for the book are, are either are repetitive, right. You're kind of just doing the same thing over and over again, or it's, 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 um, it's you're you're not discovering anything new, right? You're um, you're kind of um, either, but, but that, that's different from being repetitive. It's just that you're um, like you're the the like the 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 book is not it's it's not giving back to you, right? As much as it you're you're kind of trying to do too much to it, but it's not giving you anything back. So that's the point where you sort of need to stop and either give it to somebody else or um, set it aside for a month, come back to it. Um, and, um, but, but ultimately, you know, you really are also actually another way of thinking of, another way for me is when another project starts to kind of call you, you know, <laughs> and like, and you start to kind of, your eyes starts to wander too much, um, with, to another story, it may be time to kind of really wrap up the one you're working on. At least, I mean, that's the way I work. I really do work novel by novel. So other writers, 
you know, writing stories and essays and poems and three novels at a time. I'm not that kind of writer. I really live in the book that I'm working on for years. And then when it reaches its natural conclusion and I start to dream of something else, then it's time to, you know, time to wrap it up. So and, and just accept whatever leaves are on the field at the time. Well, I think I think it's landed very well. So I hope that everyone enjoys reading it. It's it's a special book. So I think it will I think it will be um, a treat for everyone who reads it and sees where the field is now. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you too. Thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.